Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 132 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Adam is out of the office today, so you just get me for this introduction. Fun times. Feel special. Um, Today's episode is um, another one of our fabulous author interviews. This time it was with Greg Isles, who is... Uh, the author of the Natchez Burning Trilogy. We spoke to him specifically about the latest book, Mississippi Blood. Um, it was a really fun conversation. We recorded it at um, our friend's Cuyahoga County Public Library, although this wasn't one of the live events, but he did do an event after our interview with him. So we talked about Mississippi Blood. We talked about um, his history and living in the South. He has this, like, totally awesome house down there that he rents out, like, Airbnb style, which is just mind-blowing. Because if you look at pictures, it's pretty magical. So, if you're ever down there and want to just go, like, hang out in Greg Isle's house, you can. He is also in a band um, with Stephen King and some other authors, which I'm sure you've heard about. Um, they have a band, which is just, again, totally magical. And so, of course... I had to ask him all of these questions about Stephen King, both on and off the podcast. So, yeah, he's just like friends with Stephen King, which just blows my mind. So, oh, my God, you guys, that means I'm like two degrees away from Stephen King now, right? Because like Greg Giles would be one degree and then that Stephen King is in two. That just occurred to me. I'm like two degrees away from Stephen King. OK, that's all. Sorry, I got a little distracted there. <laughs> anyway so yeah um this is our interview with greg isles and um as always if you have any comments or feedback or just want to say hello you can find us on twitter at pro book nerds that is adam and i behind um the computer screen there and you can also email us directly at professional book nerds at overdrive.com again that's adam and i we read everything that comes through so please send your emails and yeah, we'll be back on Thursday with our um, big episode of July books coming out. Um, and yeah, so tomorrow is 4th of July here in the United States. So for all of our American listeners, I hope you have a very happy holiday. Bye. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Adam and Joe from Team Overdrive, and today we're joined by Greg Isles, a New York Times bestselling author 13 times over, who is well known for his Natchez Burning trilogy, featuring his popular character, Penn Cage. He has spent his life in Mississippi, and is one of the foremost authors in regards to writing about the American South. Several of his novels have been turned into films, and they've been published in more than 35 countries. 35 countries. His latest book, Mississippi Blood, the thrilling conclusion of his Natchez Burning trilogy, is now available. So, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here, Adam. So, would you mind starting us off by giving us a brief introduction of Mississippi Blood? Uh, Mississippi Blood is the third volume of a trilogy that we're called the Natchez Burning Trilogy. And um, in it, people finally get the uh, answers to the questions they've been invested in for about 2,300 pages. <laughs> I know that sounds intimidating. <laughs> but um, the best way to put this is, uh, even though it's an epic story, it's a at its heart, it's a family story of a father and son. One critic said, imagine Jim Finch grew up to learn things about Atticus that no son should ever know about his mm -hmm. father. 
That's what pulls people through, I think. Uh-huh. And the background is an epic background of civil rights murders based on real life murders around my hometown. So, and, and you mentioned this being this, you know, just kind of sweeping story, twenty three hundred pages worth of, of sweeping. I think I think that's a good good uh, adjective to use. But uh, you have this really great video on your website where you just got done kind of writing everything and turning it in, and you tell everyone, like you said, you know, you answer all of the questions that they have and the fact that it's been an eight year journey for you. So what was that feeling like wrapping up this story after spending so much time with it? I feel, um, I feel old. That sounds funny. But when I started, I was 49. I had both my legs. Uh, my kids were ending middle school Mm -hmm. and I felt young finishing it. I'm about, I was about to turn 57. I only have one leg. (laughs) My kids graduated college and one's in UVA and I look like Santa Claus. Now. So when they called me to say it just hit number one on every list in the country, I said, Hey, I earned it. Jay. <laughs> you know, this was not a, not luck. This was work. I love that attitude, by the way. That is a like, very good attitude I, to have about this. Well, yeah. a lot of times people hit, you know, number one, obviously this is not your first bestseller, but when people hit number one there, they are that like, oh, I'm so blown away. And I know people are a lot of times modest and understanding, but I think you're, yeah. you're in the right to be like, thank goodness. You know what? That should have happened. <laughs> yeah. So, um, actually in your answer to the last one, you kind of led into the next question, which is that you're not really shy about talking about the accident that led to Natchez burning, um, to become a trilogy. So for those of our listeners who maybe aren't aware, can you kind of talk about that a little bit and sort of the, how it led into your writing? Yeah. I was on that hamster wheel of being a best-selling novelist, like, the read, the writers most people read one book a year working really hard my last book had been number one in paperback and I was getting a little cocky honestly they just paid me a lot of money and uh, I bought 40 acres in a house across the highway from where I lived and I was making the momentous journey of going to look at paint colors and a truck hit my driver's door going 70 and uh, took my leg off tore my aorta crushed my pelvis my leg my hip my ribs my arms And I woke up out of a coma eight days later and I just had a completely different attitude. You know, I had been trying to tell this story in one volume and I realized it was impossible. And my publisher didn't like the conclusion I came to. So (laughs) pretty quickly, I lost my agent and my publisher and I was off the shelf for five years. Uh A lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, this is some Oprah type story. It's not. It's like a Jerry Maguire story. You know, mm-hmm. hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change the world. And they're like, uh, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. You know, so <clears throat> I committed all that time and I set to work and uh, nobody knew what would happen. But five years later, the first one debuted at number two. And, you know, it, it's resonated for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. The irony is this. When I first started writing them, people were starting to talk about America being a post-racial society. And then now, yeah. I don't think one person in North America would argue we're in a post-racial right, society. Right. But I was worried in the beginning the books would be irrelevant mm-hmm. or passe. And suddenly they're going, oh, he's a prophet, whatever. <laughs> um, it's a total accident, mm-hmm. you know? So I that was actually, that's a good kind of point. When you decided to make this you know, a trilogy and, and you had this story that you wanted to tell, obviously it was more so... A, that's what it was. It was a story you wanted to tell as opposed to a commentary on what you kind of were seeing. Would that be yeah, yeah. What it was was that my father had passed away in 2010, one year before the accident. I had some discussions with him about telling about family, race, the South. That was why I had difficulty getting it into one book. Uh-huh. So the, the importance of the accident was 
I stopped caring about the commercial realities. Mm -hmm. I stopped caring what agents and publishers or family or anybody would say. And I was willing to not pull any punches. And I think that's what ended up triggering the reaction that the book got. Suddenly here was this horrifyingly realistic portrayal of what it had been like in the sixties. And for whatever reason, both black and white people responded. You know? um, and I'm, I'm guessing, I know that you have told everyone who hasn't had a chance to read it yet. All the answers are there for you. Go, you know, read the book and enjoy it. But I'm assuming you might have some fans hoping for more stories in this world. I feel like there's always readers who kind of <clears throat> can't get enough of a, of a world that they've grown to kind of like to be in. There's one, without giving any spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I kind of led you into that. <laughs> yeah, you find out everything in this, but if you think about physically where some of the characters end up, there's certainly one more pen book to come. It won't be the next book, but it'll come. Mm -hmm. I, I need it. I need a break. I mean, I said 2,300 pages. That's quarter of a million words. No, 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 sorry. Three quarters of a million, not a quarter of a million, oh, three quarters of a million. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when you, that's about the length of nine conventional thrillers in yeah. three books. So it's like, I need to do a little bit less ambitious book before I come back to this universe, you know? That's Picture understandable. Book. <laughs> a children's book. Well, I mean, as an author, you are one who kind of jumps around genres. You know, you don't necessarily like stay in your lane. So well, you know, speak. I'm playing a band with Mitch Album. And well. I'm, always, I'm always jealous on the bus. Mitch's books about that, <laughs> about, about that thin, and he's selling ten thousand times more than I am. And true. I'm like, Mitch, I got to get this figured you out. You should write like the two people you meet in heaven or something instead, <laughs> just out of steal his idea. The two people you meet in Mississippi. There so. you go. Come on. There you go. But um, so your reasoning or you know, bouncing back and forth between genres. Is that something you do for you as a writer or is it something you do to kind of reach broader audience of readers? No, unquestionably, I always did that for me. And I'm lucky to be able to do it. And I'll tell you, my first two books, first book I calculatedly wrote to be a bestseller because I had been a musician until I was 29 and I was making a living, but I was touring 50 weeks a year. And I was like, uh-uh, but I didn't want to get a real job. So I, I knew I had to make publishers money if I was going to have a career. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So I calculatedly wrote what would become a bestseller, and it did. It was set in World War II, and so was the second. Now, that happens to be my best book. But I knew if I did one more, that was all they would ever let me do. Mm -hmm. You know. So I took a hard left turn, and then I, I just wrote about whatever interested me. Now, you don't get to do that in this business. The only way you get to do that is if you keep making corporations money while you do that. Mm -hmm. So I've been very lucky, but I've also pushed my luck at every turn and said, I'll risk my career to do something totally different. Mm -hmm. And I don't advise people to do that. <laughs> but my, my feeling was always this. I like reading series, some series. But almost inevitably what happens in a series is you get three, four, five really good books. And then the writer's basically just rewriting the last book, mm -hmm. you know, and I never wanted to do that. Right. I would shoot myself in the head if I was doing that. So that's another reason I don't want to go straight back to the pen. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have to say you, you say, you know, you calculated it to be a bestseller. Like it's, I, I get what you're saying where it's like, okay, there are certain beats when you see a, a bestselling mystery or thriller book. That part I get, but I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. You still have to write those beats. So I <laughs> yeah. think, I oh, think yeah. you can be a little happy with the fact that, you know, it's one thing to say, here's the formula to make a bestseller. It's another thing. Well, that here's do the it. thing. Having the formula doesn't really do you any good. Right. You got to have the gift. Yeah. If you don't have that, you don't have a chance. Yeah. But this is the thing. I'm very definite about 
having the gift or recognizing when people do have it. I think writers are born, not made. I think you can make writers better, but you can't teach somebody to write. So that was just something I always could do. I never questioned if I could do it. Teachers along the way pulled me aside and said, um, you realize you can write, right? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah. I, I didn't see how that was going to get me a date with the girl I want to go out right. with or whatever. So, you know, playing guitar was way better for that. But when I was 29 and facing, oh, am I going to have to go to law school or whatever? Then it was like, okay, yeah. what is it you can do? And I thought, hey, I can write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, events bore it out. And I'm not bragging. You know, writing is like singing. I've said this before. If I tell you I can sing, how many seconds do I have to sing before you decide right. I can sing or not? Four seconds? Yeah. Three seconds? You know, pretty Writing is just the same. Mm-hmm. People don't believe that because they can write a letter. They can write a legal brief. They can write a sermon. It's got nothing to do with writing novels, mm-hmm. telling stories, right? So, And I recognize that. When people show me a chapter, they always think, how can you judge my work in a chapter? I'm like, you're lucky if somebody reads a chapter, yeah. man. A page is enough, yeah. right? Anyway. So do you know what you're planning on, on working on next? You mentioned that there's going to be another pen cage novel, but not, not next. Do you have any idea of what you're... I've been working on a sort of film noir in print set in Oxford, Mississippi, which is where I went to college. Home of William Faulkner and Donna Tartt went to school there. <coughs> um, excuse me, uh, John Grisham, you know, a lot of us were, came out of the program there. And I was really lucky. I... I studied under Willie Morris there and he brought in people like uh, James Dickey who wrote Deliverance, William Styron, John Knowles. But but it wasn't that they taught us how to write. It was that we got to hang out with those guys and drink in a bar and, <laughs> yeah. and realize, hey, they really will pay people to do this for a living. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm old, man. When you're born when I was, 1960, in Mississippi, you didn't grow up thinking you could be a writer. The last person who'd been a writer from there was William freaking Faulkner, man. <laughs> You don't grow up thinking, yeah, I think I'll win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> but now there's this girl, Angie Thomas, black mm-hmm. girl from Jackson, Mississippi, number one, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Kids who grow up in Mississippi now can look at Grisham, me, Catherine Stockett, Donna Tart, whoever. And it's like, hey, man, yeah, I can be a writer. It's no big thing. So um, speaking of William Faulkner, it, you lived in a residence that he had grown up in. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of inherited it from a law school buddy, a dude who um, was from my hometown. It's a really quiet guy who played piano. And the people who own the place is contiguous to Roanoke, Faulkner's home as an adult. And uh, the, the landlords liked him because he played piano. And he talked, he sort of talked me into his spot when he graduated law school. And it was this little, they call it a cabin, but it was a little house. And Faulkner's maid, housekeeper, whatever who took care of him and his cousins lived there and she would tell them stories, you know, about being a slave. She had been born a slave. And uh, so, you know, I don't believe in the supernatural and everything, but I got to say when I was living in that little place, it was pretty cool vibe in there. You know? So actually that kind of plays into what I was curious about. Were there any like remnants of his family or, or any like trinkets or I'm just imagining you like opening up a, like a, a desk and thinking, Oh, that's Faulkner's <laughs> diary. <laughs> I wish I could say that. But treasure man. hunters at the like, National Treasure 3 or something. Right. It was just, no, it was just the vibe of knowing they had been there. And, of course, Roanoke was right through the woods. Yeah. Um, so you've talked with Cashin about the challenges of accurately portraying the South in your stories. And you certainly are not afraid to kind of deal head on with the atrocities of the past. And your stories definitely feel like 
ones that can only come from someone raised in that environment. Um, so could you just like talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, as a thriller writer, I was reluctant for a long time to even take those things on, mostly because of the stereotypes prevalent in the North, which are completely mm -hmm. wrong, which is that it was always easy for Northerners to say, isn't that racism terrible down there in Mississippi, down there in Alabama? Whereas, in fact, in the South, terrible things certainly happen, but they happen in the open, they were overt. Racism was always, it was never hypocritical. It was right out there in front of you. In the North, put it this way, there were single counties in Mississippi that had more African Americans than seven or eight Northern states put together. So it's very easy to pontificate about something about which you know nothing. But as soon as the great migrations occurred and blacks moved North in large numbers looking for education, housing, all those things, Racism reared its head in the North and became this terrible thing. So I never wanted to portray the KKK as my villains and all that. This is a long answer, but it's important. Yeah. The, um, the KKK as an organization was infiltrated by the FBI by 66. Its leaders were on the FBI payroll. But when I found out that there had been this splinter group that broke off from the Klan and really with impunity killed, beat, murdered a lot of people, and none were arrested for 40 years... That was a story I really wanted to tell, thought was worth telling. But I was very careful about doing it because I I learned a lot all along the way. Things kept uh, confirming what I knew to be the truth, uh -huh. that racism was universal, not simply sectional or Southern. And that's a, I talk about that, you know, when I'm out on the road. I could give you a lot of examples, but we don't have time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the really important way to put it, though, the fact that, you know, it's an unfortunate thing, but it's true that racism is everywhere. And I think it's one thing to, like you said, I love exactly what you said. It's, it'd be easy for you just to say, yeah, the KKK, they're the worst ever. Am I right? But you, you treat it with such respect that it's, um, it shines through. And it, I think it's something that, like I said, I don't think someone, admittedly, people, we both grew right. up in the North. I don't think that we could write that type of a story because mm. I don't think we could give it the, it's proper due. Well, so. some things like that, yeah, you have to live. Like I mentioned in the book, uh, the biggest KKK meeting ever held in the United States happened one mile from my house. Mm -hmm. Most people who grew up in my hometown don't even know that, right. though. See, it's it's um, it's weirdly parallel to, like, the concentration camps in Germany and mm -hmm. people saying they didn't know this or that was mm -hmm. happening. And you want to say, oh, how could you not know? But the way things worked in the South was that many... I, I got to be 45 before I even knew the murders that these books are based on even happened. Right. It's not like they were in the newspaper or anybody talked right. about them. They just they happened on the fringes. Women and children essentially were insulated and protected from all that. And uh, it's this very weird thing. Uh, anyway, and, and I hope, I guess what I will say about the Klan and people like that, it isn't that I want to show them any kind of respect. It's that I showed what they are as human beings. One of the most shocking things to people where I'm from has been like, oh, my God, that guy, I recognize that guy. He used to coach me in Little League uh -huh. or I used to cut his grass. And yeah. you realize that evil is not this compartmentalized thing off to the side. It's right among you. Mm -hmm. Like one of my books, Blood Memories, about repressed memories of child abuse. The thing I learned with that is. Child abuse isn't happening out in the trailer park on the edge of town. It's happening in the minister of music's house mm -hmm. right next door to you. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and we don't want to think that because once you accept that, you don't know how to fight it, mm -hmm. really. But but we got to recognize it yeah. to fight it. Um, 
I'm going to try the most awkward transition in the world here, yeah. but I'm still going to go for it. Uh, earlier, we were talking about uh, different places, you know, the, the cabin you lived in that was Faulkner's, and you kind of mentioned growing up, and you have this incredible workspace that you have called Edelweiss, <laughs> and not only is it gorgeous, and I couldn't stop looking at pictures of it when I was doing some research, it's actually available for your fans to stay in, is that correct? Yeah, that, that's only because of, of my accident, really, you know? Um it was built in 1883. It's right on the bluff, 250 feet over the Mississippi River. I mean, it is one of a kind, but it's three stories tall. Yeah. And I didn't want to mess it up by putting in an elevator. Uh -huh. So once I lost my leg, it really became problematic to work there all the time. Second, in the interim since I bought it and now, I bought it shortly after Hurricane Katrina, my fame sort of ratcheted up a lot. And that house is really right in one of the most toured areas of yeah. Natchez. So people literally, they would just come up and knock on the door. Sometimes they don't even knock on the door. They will just walk in. <laughs> so imagine trying to work somewhere where people walk in. Hey, is this oh open? Do they just assume it's like a, a museum or like a historical? No, society? they know it's my yeah. place. Because oh, so the <laughs> hotels and people, t they say, where does Greg House live? Where does he work? <laughs> Look, I live on 40 acres outside of town. People drive out there and try to find me out there. That's, that's Creepy. That's the re it's it's <laughs> yeah. not quite as bad. That's the reason John Grisham ended up leaving Oxford was because it got so bad. People would wait outside John's church with like stacks of books, mm -hmm. you know, to sign. I mean, you at a certain point, I liked being in my hometown because to the people there, I was always the guy who played music in the bar. Right. They played football with me or whatever. But about five or six years ago, it all changed and it's gotten different, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I'm thinking about spending part of the year somewhere else yeah. okay. well i have to say the website you have for it it looks like you make it look like the world's most beautiful airbnb i've ever seen like i literally showed my wife i was like hey honey if we're ever <laughs> well what's cool about it me? i used to before we did that i used to let people who were in the publishing business or news business friends i have if they're passing through i just let them stay there like roy blunt jr stay there and uh <laughs> flooded at one time when Roy Blunt Jr. said <laughs> water came crashing oh through the third floor. So, but you know, it was just that. So it really is a great vibe if anybody's looking for somewhere. To stay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have to ask, as two musical theater nerds, yes. is the name from the flower or the song from the Sound of Music? It's from the. It was actually named Edelweiss back in 1883. Oh, okay, and the flower is engraved on like the lintel post mm -hmm. inside, but of course. My wife and I are huge sound and music fans, okay. and so it's perfect for us. But nobody can pronounce it. I don't want to. We're, we're on a podcast. I don't want to say okay. anything. But everybody mispronounces it, and it's so awkward to. You don't really want to correct them. But like the fiftieth time yeah. you've heard it, you know. Well, so in addition to the whole theater thing, it's also the name of a website that, being being a, a library company, there is a website called Edelweiss that we can get advanced copies of, of books oh, at. Okay. So we had a, a few reasons where we should be able to say it. So, I got you. But I, yeah. it's, it's, you know, the easiest for the world. Um, all right. We would be remiss if we didn't at least ask you one question about the <laughs> rock bottom remainder, uh, remainders. So for people who are unaware, you were in a literary band that's literally, it's the greatest collection of authors who play music of all time. It's amazing. Uh, Two quick questions. One, how did this come about? And two, and this one's for Jill because she wouldn't ask this and I'm going to make sure I ask it for her. Do you have any fun stories about Stephen King that you'd be willing to share? Because she's like the biggest Stephen King fan <laughs> in the world. Being willing to share. First of all, now when people say you're in this band of the greatest authors, ever since Trump, I start going, 
overrated losers. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I'm reluctant to share too many, but I have a good one with Steve because Steve and I were both in the, in an accident that nearly killed us. Uh-huh. And um, not too long ago at an anniversary show, I don't remember what city we were in, but <clears throat> I barely could work my prosthetic leg and Steve was not feeling great. And the stage was, God, a thousand yards, 15 yards from the green room. And I'm like, dude, are you walking to the stage? He's like, no, hell no. You know? I'm like, how are we getting there? Have they got golf carts or something? He goes, I don't think so. And so Dave Barry, what does he do? He goes and finds like a UPS cart for packages. And the band oh throws me and Steve God. on this UPS cart. And they start oh. running us through this like outdoor mall area through hotel lobbies. It was like hard day's night. And Steve starts singing old rock songs at the top of his voice. Pretty soon we're singing the wreck of the old 97. Now Steve is pretty distinctive looking, as you know. So people would, you can't see it on podcast. People would be staring, pointing like, is that, is is that Steve? And we were just yelling and screaming and Dave in the band. But I mean, I, I don't want to talk forever, but I mean, sure. I, I've gotten to do things like um, I got to play Don't Fear the Reaper mm. for Steve to sing that while he's screaming more cowbell that's, and banging on a cowbell. I mean, you you could there's nothing in the world more surreal than that kind of stuff and fun. That is, and we're still a band. I mean, yeah. they were talking about having a gig in Sun Valley, Idaho in a couple months. I don't know if it's going to come together. But. Has anyone in the, in the admittedly very large group, has there ever been like, backstage conversations that of someone in your group ends up writing a book and you're like wait a minute oh no that's totally against the rules i don't mean oh, oh i don't mean that they would be writing about like if an idea came up and all oh. of a sudden you're like i think we talked about that oh yeah totally i mean i again not to dwell too much on steve but he and i one night in the hotel room told each other ideas for books we hadn't read yet and written yet and the one he told me was eleven twenty two sixty three. Oh, god what and that, i mean is that not you uh, know, that's incredible so that cool, is incredible uh. so but that's the thing writing is an isolating profession especially where i'm from even though mississippi has a lot of writers so to get to spend a couple of weeks in a bus or an airplane or whatever with other people who do what you do you learn a lot about pro- everybody's process you talk about ideas, and also you talk about the problems that normal people wouldn't sympathize with. I mean, not many people are going to sympathize with the problems of right. best-selling yeah. mm-hmm. authors, but you got problems Absolutely. just like everybody. Yeah. And so, when you're with a group of people who share the same problems, it's a it's a great way to let off steam and have fun. As Amy Tan once said, you know, we do this for charity, and that's a great cause, but we have so much fun we would kill whales to be able to. Do this. <laughs> well, if you want to tell your friend Stephen King to come on our podcast, like, yeah, that's I'm fine. <laughs> We'd be happy to squeeze them in. Everywhere I've been, that believe it or not. I, that's imagine, what I imagine that comes up once or twice. Um, so we are a library company. We are sitting in a library, and we are recording this during National Library Week. Okay. So do you have, we always like to ask uh, writers if they have any memories of, of going sure. to the library. Sure. I mean, in my little town, um, I still remember exactly what it looked like, exactly what it smelled like. I remember like the old summer reading programs, you know, where you're mm-hmm. sort of in a contest with people. Um, I also remember, you know, my dad, who's the basis of Tom Cage in the book, he only cared about two things, practice and medicine and books. And he spent his whole life building up a library in our house, which it's my duty now to take care of. <laughs> but I mean, the guy worshiped books and his whole life he gave whenever he had to call out books and change that he always, you know, yeah. gave to the library and stuff. So, and as I go through some places, it's funny. 
some towns like Birmingham, Alabama, I'll see a great library system where people are pouring money into it and it's great. And then you get to other places and they're just falling into ruin, uh -huh. you know? And so it really seems to be area dependent as far yeah. as whether libraries succeed or it not. It is. Uh -huh. It is. When we are very appreciative, we have, we're very fortunate here in Cleveland. We have two outstanding library systems so it's, yeah I, it has a lot to do with the funding absolutely yeah, yeah. whether oh, yeah. it comes from like additional state funding and all that stuff but that's yeah. well and see <laughs> in mississippi good example mississippi yeah. 50th in almost everything except writers and music yeah. etc and uh you can bet i mean they just they were just about to kill all the funding for the arts in mississippi yeah. it's just yeah. pathetic but anyway okay um so towards the end of our podcast we have nine we call them rapid fire questions they never end up being rapid oh, fire okay. we call them the nerd nine just because we like alliteration yeah. um first one is what's the last book you finished wow this is why they never end up being yeah i the last book i finished one of the one of the mystery novels of Ken Bruin. I can't remember the title, but That's he's cool. an Irish mystery writer. Do you have a favorite place to read? By Kindle. Uh, how about a guilty pleasure of any kind? Could be food, TV. Uh, I just bought some Pig Newtons at the Walmart that I'm about, <laughs> that I'm about to tear up. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel you have not yet been to? Greek islands. Do you have a favorite holiday? No. Uh, are you a coffee or a tea person? Coffee. That's the right answer. Are you a cat or cat. a dog? Yes. Oh, man. Cats rule. Get it yes. out. Uh, we're, this is our eternal struggle. I'm a dog person. She's a cat person. Uh, favorite food? Dog person? Is that even uh, a class? Oh, I know, right? Man. I don't know. Let's <laughs> okay, move on. Whatever. Favorite food? Favorite food? Come on, man. Uh, <laughs> anything edible that won't kill me. All right. favorite food. And then if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Somebody at least gave me five choices the other day. Uh, <laughs> one was Robert Oppenheimer, actually. Um, you know, Carl Jung. That's who I'd pick. One person, Carl Jung. I thought you'd say William Faulkner for sure. No. <laughs> A lot of people who are on the road and traveling say their significant other, right. but your significant other is here. We found that if they're away from their significant other, they <laughs> always say their wife or husband. That's usually who they pick. Yeah. Uh, our last Gutless, question. man. Gutless. <laughs> uh, our last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading your books? Um, I hope they, let's say this, I have a secret plan. I seduce people into these books by giving them a story that they can't resist. But once they're in, they find out they're reading about something they might otherwise never have read about. So what I hope they take away from it is a little bit of the reality of what America was like in the sixties and that, you know, there's hope, but it takes courage to, to have progress, you know? It's not easy. Yeah. Well, I know you weren't feeling well today, so we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much oh, yeah. for joining yeah, us today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was fun. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.